Hey everyone, welcome to our podcast now again. <laughs> it's then again. It's then again. Who's the it's, it's with Ken and Glenn. Yay, that's me. Now and, and again. Now, now and again. again. Today's topic is myths of the American Revolution. And, and I wanted to already jump in and say, let's define that. Let's just go ahead and take that as our starting point. It's as episode called, one? As episode one. This may be a multi-part series, ladies and gentlemen. This so, will be a multi-part series. This will series. be a multi-part series. So, Revolutionary War is the first thing. There is a considerable body of historians who are starting to say, don't even refer to it as a revolutionary war. The war itself was a war for independence, the American War for Independence, or the War for American Independence. But as far as the revolutionary part, that doesn't really come about until we get to the creation of the United States Constitution in the late 1780s. So you, you really have to be careful with a term like revolutionary war or revolutionary era and make sure you're defining exactly what you're talking about. Because in its broadest terms, and I know you and I have talked about this, Glenn, if you want to talk about the revolutionary period, huge 18th century air quotes, you know, you're going from the French and Indian War up through the first session of Congress after the Constitution is passed, you know, in 1789. This is a very long period of time if you want to talk about the totality well, of, quote, the revolution. Even then, you're only talking about the American Revolutionary Period. Right. If you want to throw Europe in there, and then <laughs> South America. Right. And then well, yeah, but, but, but that's a good point. The other, quote, revolutions that are inspired by our revolution. The ripples and the effects go on for decades and decades. But even if you do want to just focus it on British North America, the war was a war for independence. It wasn't a revolution. It was a war of separation, not revolution. Well, and as, as I'm, I know you are familiar with this, but Adam said that by the time the firing started, the revolution had already taken place in the minds of the people because for so long they had been independently governing themselves. Right. They had been going about their own business economically and socially and things like that. And he considered, Adams at least, considered right. that the revolution and then the war was just the violent means to make that a reality. Right, right, exactly. And then, so then, yeah, you get to what does revolution mean? Well, for him, it was the people had already rejected the old order of being governed by Britain, governed by the United Kingdom. Another view of the revolution being complete is the unique way our Constitution came to be written and ratified and, and then went into effect that once it was in effect, and my dear, dear friend Patrick Henry would say, it wasn't really in effect until first 10 amendments were passed, the Bill of Rights. That's the revolutionary part, a codified, enduring, these are the rights that we recognize the people have. It's not the government giving the rights, it's recognizing that the rights are there even before government. And that the government is there to secure To secure them. the rights, yeah, exactly. So, so that's sort of the revolutionary thing, aside from the war. And then, you know, once we get, you know, y'all who are listening, drop by the History Center sometime and, and just walk up to the front desk and you, if you happen to catch Glenn and David and I holding forth about <laughs> the way the war was fought. We have at least daily, sometimes several times daily, seminars. Seminars. Staff development on modules, myths, if you were. Smiths of this, of this war. And, and one of the biggest ones is, you know, the whole, oh, look at those dumb Brits, you know, walking in red uniforms down the middle of a road or in the middle of a field so we can shoot at them from behind trees and, and rock. That, that's one of the biggest myths that, that needs to be dispelled because it's this special deal where the British Army was really, really good <laughs> and learned from mistakes, especially mistakes it made in the French and Indian War. Like, oh, 
We've been ambushed and cut to pieces because we wouldn't change our formations. They learned how to change their formations. They learned how to have light infantry companies. Hey, guess what? They had riflemen too. And that's on my list, although it's it's uh, has several parenthetical remarks because <laughs> I think the people behind rocks and trees versus redcoat guys in a straight line, militia versus regular, that is a myth within a myth because of the very nature of the American army, again, giant quotes, army at the beginning of the war <laughs> versus the British, you know, it, it is a militia. They ha There had been some training. The militia in the New World was very different than what it had been in Great Britain. It was an active militia, but it was not a regular force. Right. The British had developed light forces, forces that were specifically meant to do the hiding behind trees and rocks, bush right. fighting during the French and Indian War, but they had sort of slid out of that as most peacetime armies do. They had gone into spit polish garrison mode and had right. they hadn't lost the knowledge but they had more or less disbanded those units and turned them into regular because they didn't need units. them for they the wars they were them. doing in europe exactly so then you get to the point where the british have to sort of relearn and retrain that and the myth that hiding behind the trees and rocks the american militia was all firing rifles that is not true most of the weapons in the northern theaters <laughs> were muskets, were smoothbores, more or less the exact same as the British regulars had. Their employment was different. We won't go into the detailed minutiae of how that really worked. But well, not this episode. Not this episode. <laughs> but then the myth I want to address is that we've come to a certain point of, well, no, that's not true. The Continental right. Army was very regular and they did those things. And the Continental Army in the North was. But when, right. when, when historians have started looking at that dynamic in the South, they began to realize that, you know what? In the Southern theater, which was a very different war than it was above the Potomac, there were a lot of guerrilla tactics hiding behind bushes right. and trees. From both sides. From both sides. And a lot of those Southern militia, probably not a majority, but possibly as many as half in certain engagements, had rifles. Mm -hmm. And it did become a rifle versus musket and bayonet situation, not only in some of the, I say larger battles, we'll talk about that context yeah, yeah, yeah. in a minute, but, but even some of the skirmishing, that starts to play a role. So people in history, there are no easy answers and everything's <laughs> complex. It, it's almost like, is life easy today? No, it's just as complex as life is today, it was back then. But getting back to the, the rocks and trees hiding behind sort of thing, a lot of what defines this war for independence in people's minds are the initial engagement, Lexington and Concord, and then the, once again, big air quotes, final engagement, right. Yorktown. But the thing to hold out as a model at Lexington and Concord, so this is, this is a raid by the regular British Army to go out, confiscate weapons that are in their eyes illegally held, and when things get hot, they realize they need to get back to Boston. So they're marching down the road to Boston, and they don't want to fight at that point. This is a withdrawal. Call it a retreat, whatever you want to call it. Their goal at this point is, we are to march as fast as we can back to Boston because we know that the countryside is swarming with thousands of people who want to shoot us. And that's not what we're here to do today. Right. Not even close to what we're here to do today. Let's get back to town. And so when they start taking fire from the smart patriots hiding behind stone walls and trees, well, they stop and then they send light infantry flankers around to cut those guys off and dispatch them so they can continue moving. It's not like they were idiots. They, they realized what to do in the face of that threat and then did it. But that's still a hard tactical it's, thing to it, accomplish. It is still a hard tactical, absolutely, absolutely, it's still a hard Which tactical. Which is why there are those losses, not only amongst the British, but right. amongst the Patriot forces right, as right. well. Right, right, exactly. But, but that does show that, you know, th they knew how to also work in the terrain, break formation when they needed to, 
do the thing that needed to be done in that tactical situation. And then segueing to what you were just talking about with the Southern Theater, I mean, holy moly, the War for Independence in Georgia, the Carolinas, the back country, you know, of Virginia and all through there was, it's it's near anarchy. It's, it's complete civil war in its truest sense of just the populace against itself, sometimes not really even for political reason. It oh, becomes right. grudge matches and settling off old scores, and you've got the irregular forces kind of do predominate. You've got the you know units of, of horsemen and dragoons and, and, and light infantry and militia mixing it up, ambushing, destroying supplies, leaving on both sides. You know you've got famous leaders like Francis Marion doing that in, in South Carolina. But, you know, Bannister Charleston's British Legion is doing the same thing. And neither side is more brutal than the other. Neither side is better at it than the other. The leaders that are making it work both know power and mobility, concealment, fight right. to your advantage, and do what needs to be done. Now, the, the big quotes around do what needs to be done. That's a calibration issue. <laughs> exactly. And, and you know that in the South, I'll lob you a softball. <laughs> Which side won most of the battles in the South? Right, exactly. It's the British. The British, by far. Yeah. And yet, they get bogged down for going into a countryside that is difficult to tell civilian from armed opponent, getting further away from those supply bases. The great general, who won less battles than Washington, Nathaniel Green, said, we fight, we get beat, we rise, and we fight again. Because exactly. the, and, the, and this is the thing to remember. Those British regulars... Most of, not all, but most of them have to come from England. They have to be trained. They have to be equipped. It is very, very difficult to replace a British regular. When yeah. a American militiaman, whether, whether Tory or Patriot, mm -hmm. gets shot down or eliminated, there are thousands more to take that person's place. Right. And it's just impossible. It, it becomes a war of attrition. It does become very much of a guerrilla war with a lot of open battles interspersed. Right. It's, a, it's, it's very... A, Many people take the metaphor of the Southern War for the British equivalent to the Vietnam War for the Americans. That, mm -hmm. that metaphor holds for pretty, a lot. Pretty true, yeah. But not, not all the way, but, 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 it, but it's, for a conversational purposes, it's a very interesting metaphor and comparison that, that does hold true for a good part of the conversation. And since, you know, uh, we're talking about myths of the struggle, the revolution, the war. Let's look at some of my favorite myths. <laughs> some of the myths that I like to debunk the most. I like to punch in the face. Hey, myth, come here. Pow. You know, it's, oh, it was fought over taxes and the tea tax and the die. It was, oh, my God, that one just gets me boiling every time because there were none of the, quote, patriot leaders who thought this was about not paying taxes. And, that, and that's what it's becoming the the popular imagination today. Right. Oh, it was about not paying. We don't want to have to pay those taxes, those unjust taxes. It's not about no taxes. Right, right. And it's not even about unjust taxes because even the, the leaders at the time realized that the British Empire asking a part of the British Empire to help pay for defense of that empire was not unreasonable. It's not that it was unjust taxes in that sense. It was the mechanism by which you were asked to pay the taxes. And that I think is what Adams means when he says the revolution had already been mm -hmm. fought in the minds of the people. Because these colonies were established, they were strong, they were prosperous, and they had their own state legislatures, their own colonial legislatures. Yes. And so much power had been acceded to those colonial legislatures over the years through precedence that they had kind of grown to think, ah, well, this is, this is where issues like taxation and financial issues are decided here. So when you get these diktats coming from London after the Seven Years' War of, well, this is how much you owe in taxes and here's how we're going to get them. No, 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 no. We'll raise the taxes, 
but we decide how they're raised. We decide where they come from. That was the issue. So please, people, get it out of your head that the founders thought that the taxes were unjust or that there shouldn't be taxes. Oh, there's going to be taxes. Yeah. <laughs> if there's a government, there's going to be taxes. Colonial legislatures were great at raising money Oh, they, they were very good at taxing things, which is why they said, leave it to us to do the taxing. And, and hey, we can tax our people. So I think, it, you know, people are like, well, how could the British have won the war? The British could have easily won the war by not fighting the war and at the beginning I, saying, you know what, yeah. you're right, Yeah. how about y'all be a commonwealth? Yeah. You owe allegiance to the king, but all of your legislative, economic procedures are handled in each colony, boom. We would still be talking English today if that was the <laughs> if case. If only we could still speak English here. And Well, you know, William Pitt, the elder, in effect said, you know, once when Lord North you know, and his and his faction were, were saying, no, we're, we're we're asserting parliamentary supremacy, and Parliament has the right to to legislate in all the. And he said, you are asserting a right, you know, you cannot enforce. His suggestion was along the lines of what you said. You know, yeah. let them do these things on their own. And so, because it had worked for him building that British it Empire absolutely did. during the French and Indian, well, Seven Years' War right, at that right. point. But that is a big myth. That, a that the war was unwinnable in, in the sense that. There were, there were other ideas floated at the time that could have made it not happen. And then the whole tax issue. It's, it's, it's not what you think it is, folks. And specifically, let's jump into the Boston Tea Party. Let's just jump in with both that feet. That was the best publicity <laughs> job ever. Exactly. That is exactly what that was. That was manipulated by the Sons of Liberty and the people that were publishing for them to make it seem like this grand stand for, for liberty. In fact, the tea tax had just been lowered by the Tea Act. The tax on imported tea had never been lower. And why was that? Because the British East India Company asked Parliament, please lower the tax because the Dutch smugglers are undercutting us. You know, and listen, who was in the importing illegal tea business? Some say John Hancock. Hum. Hmm, he Some. said. <laughs> That's pretty so, much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so there were reasons for that thing that were more about eliminating the competition than about a stand against an unjust tax because, like I just said, the tax had already been lowered. And also, do you need tea to stay alive? Well, you do in the morning. I do. Glenda, yes. you think the tax on tea is too high? Don't drink tea. So the, that whole Boston Tea Party, and even at the time, Boston Tea Party, of course, is not a contemporary phrase. That's not what they called it. They call it the affair in Boston, mm -hmm. the incident in Boston, the destruction of tea in Boston, the illegal action in Boston, the criminal activity in Boston. Believe me, people like George Washington and Benjamin Franklin didn't think that what those guys did was a good idea. Because they destroyed public Pro property. No, 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 private, excuse me, private, private property. Exactly, private property. exactly. The, the, the precedent said of, ah, we're angry, let's destroy private property. Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're all in favor we, of we private property. We agree with property. your sentiments, yeah, but, but you've gone too far. You don't destroy private property. Well, and, and I think, you know, your, your point is that there's we see these as the things that lead up to the revolution, yeah. again, quotes, and the war. Most of what had made Parliament back down had been economic measures. Exactly. We call them sanctions today. We call them sanctions. Sanctions but, but, and embargoes exactly, and tariffs. But, but the, exactly, but the, the <clears throat> colonists themselves, with the committees of correspondence, coordinating uh, what we call boycotts or, or, or embargoes, as they call non-importation acts. Like, okay, okay, you want to impose taxes on cards and this, that, and the other? We'll simply stop buying them. And they did. And they did. And within months, the merchants are going to Parliament going, uh, you need to repeal the Stamp Act. You need to repeal the, you know, it worked. And there was no reason for things like the 
quote, Boston Tea Party, because the tactics, the economic tactics that were within the law had worked. And what was the result of the Boston Tea Party <laughs> for the movement? It forced Britain to militarize its operations exactly. and, and come down like a hammer on the Port of Boston and on the entire Massachusetts colony. Re results in the Boston Port Act, which closes the closes the Port of Boston, you know, and, and now there is a rallying point. It was a brilliant bit of tactics by, by the Sons of Liberty and people like Sam Adams to deliberately provoke <laughs> the British forces and the government, which had been responding to things the way they do in a messy democracy. Yes. To go, oh no, oh no! Now, now this is a different thing, and now we're going to do iron fist smashing down, and that always works every time. You know, so so you're exactly right. It was a it was a brilliant tactic, and it resulted in something that gave the other colonists made them think, ah, if they can close Boston, they can close Savannah, they can close right. Charleston, you know, they can close Philadelphia, and now suddenly everyone's got a stake in the game. And that's what's so funny is all the other people in the in the other colonies were saying, you did wrong, Boston. Right. And now look what it's gotten us. Yeah, yeah. And 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 now we're going to have to band together. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know, and, and all of these things lead directly to, you know, the First Continental Congress in 74. And then the ball is rolling. Yeah. And, and chances are that it's not going to stop rolling anytime soon. And, and say, hey, Ken, speaking of myths, I'm sure at that First Congress you're talking about <laughs> and the goal of the Boston Tea Party was to achieve independence for America. Wait a second. <laughs> doesn't sound right because it isn't. It's not right, exactly. Independence was not thought of until after the first shots had been fired, the first battles had been thought. It had been fomented in certain right. people's minds, but it did not become a legitimate movement right. amongst the majority of representatives. We'll get right. to the actual people in a second until the, the last, we're, we won't go into the entire history, right. but the olive branch was rejected by right. the king. Right. Right. And only in early spring of 76 did the movement for independence get right. rolling. Up until that point, they wanted yeah. to remain British citizens. Because there were a lot of benefits. It was a good thing to be a British <laughs> the citizen. The British Constitution was pretty good. <laughs> Your ships were protected by the British Navy, exactly. the greatest navy in the world. Exactly. You had open markets that were not open to any other exactly. countries. But then that segues into the next myth. So by the time you get to early 76, the individual colonies themselves are voting for independency long before the Second Continental Congress votes for independence famously in July. At that point, it's kind of a formality because the individual states have, I believe all of them, by the time we get to July 2nd, have already voted for independency as their own little state entity. Right. And then as the United States sitting in Congress convened declares independence. Right. And, and in most, of the, most of the colonies, that's true, but it had <clears throat> that uh, independency vote had, of course, been carried out by rogue bodies that do not represent the people and right, have not right, been approved right. by the respective governors and things like that. Right. But another myth when it comes to independency and, and who supports that is the famous one-third myth. Yeah. Um, uh. so, so it comes from an Adams quote that says a third of people were for independence, a third of people were for staying with the British, and a third of the people were neutral. They didn't care. Well, that's not the best because really the root of that comes from a letter that Adams wrote years after 1800, I can't uh -huh. remember the exact year, that said, well, the Americans are not interested in getting involved, and some of them don't care, and some of them just hate England so much. That letter was in reference to the American response to the French, French Revolution. Revolution. Yes. And so the question becomes, well, how many people supported this and that? It's a tough thing to call. Right. Latest scholarship says 20 to 25% loyalist, 40% strong patriots. Right. 
and the remainder are basically in favor of whoever <laughs> has the biggest army next to them. And that, and that sounds funny, but exactly. it's true. Again, but, especially in the South, yes. when you've got roving bands and yeah. someone comes up, some loyalist group comes up with a hangman's noose hanging off their cell. You say, says, God save the king. You say, God save the king, when and the you sign a note. the next day, God save Congress. You, save that, you sign that note, too. And, and exactly. you know, it's, it's hard to tell, especially in the South with the Civil War going on, right. where people stand because it's a it's a dangerous place right. to be. I think that statistic <clears throat> you, just, you just said, though, does point out that in no one place was there a loyalist majority. I mean, a 20 to 25% loyalist sentiment is an <clears throat> incredibly sizable minority, but I don't think in any one place if, that they enjoyed a superiority. If I had to pluck some place out of Maybe. the hat, New York City. Well, New, yeah, York New York City. City. Yeah, 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 just the city. Exactly. But other than that, I, yeah. I think you're right. It's, it's hard to, to pin that down because people had their own thoughts and perspectives right. and, and mindsets and opinions. And, and, it, and they're changing over the course of the war, which is, you know, another nice myth. It's, it's, it was not a unified, let's all, let's all walk down to... Philadelphia and declare independence on July 4th, and then we're all going to fight together till it's over at Yorktown. It isn't. It's very divisive. I mean, you know, you've got Benedict Arnold is the famous figure for turning his coat for being a traitor, but you've got people changing sides all throughout the war in all the theaters. But once again, especially in the South, you've got people changing sides dozens of times because that's just the reality of I've got to survive this thing. And keep my family and safe. keep my family safe. Can I, I think we can all understand that. Why wouldn't you do that? And, and especially in a theater like the South where it's not cut and dried, who's going to be in control? Yeah, you're, you're going to switch sides. So it's, it's not this unified, we're all believing in the same thing. And we know from doing Rev War era programming, you know, that a lot of people sort of conflate things in their mind. And it's, oh, yes, yeah, so on July 4th, we declared independence, and that's when our new constitution started, and we had our Bill of Rights. And it's like, no, all of those things are separate components. <clears throat> no. That are years apart, and even the Constitution didn't have a Bill of Rights when it was passed. That was added as the first act of the new Congress. So there's lots of different bits. And of course, speaking of that Bill of Rights and the constitutional ratification process, once again brings me back to Patrick Henry. Sure. <laughs> and because uh, I always have to come back to him, cause I play him. You can book him here at the Cottrell Digital Studio <laughs> for your school group. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. You know, one of the one of the famous myths of the revolution is Patrick Henry, the famous speech in Richmond in 75, where he says, give me liberty or give me death, except that there's absolutely no documentation that he ever said that in those words, that most likely he made a reference to a play called Cato by Joseph Addison, uh, which says, now is time to talk of naught of not but change or liberty. You know, it was an incredibly popular play in the 18th century, incredibly popular in the colonies, and if he made some sort of reference, it was probably quoting that play. But as far as the actual speech that everyone thinks this comes from, that, that indeed school children to this day are taught, and here's the speech he gave in Richmond in 1775. Well, it was written by his first biographer, William Wirt, because he couldn't find any extant speeches by Patrick Henry to print in his biography of Patrick Henry. But that speech is an important part of our national memory and identity. I want it to be true. Yes, but that just shows you've got to give up those myths. I mean, I guess you don't have to, but 
don't be surprised when history knocks you in the head because it will do that when you don't remember it properly. Right. And then the circumstances that created it arise again and suddenly you don't, you've remembered the wrong thing or the false thing. And me saying that Patrick Henry didn't make that statement in that speech because there's no documentation isn't diminishing Patrick Henry. As a matter of fact, what that should do is spur you to read more about Patrick Henry. And uh, when William Ritt, the guy I'm talking about who wrote that first biography of Henry in the early 1800s, when he was writing to people who knew Henry, and who were at some of Henry's speeches asking, hey, does anyone have a copy of his speech? They all unanimously replied with, he didn't write his speeches down. The people who knew him said, oh, he didn't write his speeches down. He would prepare what he wanted to say, but he would speak extemporaneously, and that was just his style. He liked to be extemporaneous, get lost in the moment, and be very emotional, very, very dramatic. One of the ministers that uh, Henry admired in his youth was a Presbyterian minister named uh, Davies, who preached in his area when he was a child, and, and that guy was a very fiery, flamboyant, and he modeled his speaking style specifically on that guy. So these people are writing back to Ritz saying, well, you know, I was there at, 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 at X location when he gave a speech on Y, and I don't really remember what he said, but wow, he was really compelling. <laughs> he was really convinced me. So it's in this case, remember that. Remember that this was a powerful speaker who could improvise, who could sway, but you don't have to believe the lie about he said this exact thing. Well, and, the, and those myths run from the high to the low and from the, from the national to the, to the local. Here, in, here in the region, one of the myths is Nancy Hart. Yes, there you um, go. Georgia's taken the trouble to name an entire county <laughs> after this Lake. lady. And Lake. <laughs> and Lake. Um, and, you know, build a, a state historic site with a reconstructed cabin. And there's no, there's no evidence that the things that were claimed for her to have done happened. Now, let, let, me, let me do some explaining. So, a lady named Nancy Hart, we're pretty <laughs> sure, did exist. Did exist. Born and raised and, and lived probably in the, in the backwoods of North Carolina, South Carolina, and then finally found her way to, to what is now Hart County in Georgia. And she was known as a very strong, very tall mean woman. I think a quote is she had no abundance of beauty. She was cross-eyed with a face pockmarked with, with scars uh, from the smallpox right. and was a strong patriot, uh, believed in the cause. And when Tories came to her cabin, they killed her prize gobbler and she was very upset and she, they, they forced her to cook it over her fire. And so she offered them some libations of an alcoholic and adult nature and they began to partake <laughs> and they got tips and she began sneaking their guns out the cabin. And when she was caught, one of them told her to stop, and she turned the gun and said, if you move, I'll kill you. He moved. She shot him, killed him dead. Right. Another guy got up. She shot him dead and held the other two there until some of her right. neighbors came to save her, and she became, this story showed how fervent she was and how tough she was uh, and became a local legend. Well, when you be begin looking at trying to tie down where the story comes from, what is the truth to it? The, again, the best we can do is there was a Nancy Hart. She did live in this area, but none of those stories, and this is just one of them about right. it, were reported by contemporaries right. at all. Right. And this is in an era when people love to contemporaneously explain, hey, I just heard this about right. this person and it's great. Right. There's no reference to the story being written down until about the 1810s. And in the 1810s, someone says, I heard this from someone, and it takes on a life of its own, obviously to the point where she becomes a, a state hero with counties right. being named and, right. and lakes being named. And it has become an important part, especially of the, of the regional mythology in terms of how, again, how patriotic everyone right. was and right. how strong the women were. And, and ugly, apparently. Um, 
but there's there's no proof to it. So how do you, you know, when you, right. when it comes to interpret the history, what do you do? You can't just ignore it. Right. It's played such a part. You have to address its role in popular memory, even as a myth, and then I think you're able to get down to the nitty-gritty of there is no there's no actual proof of this. Right. But but what it what we can learn from it is, about real life right. and about time those times is X, Y, and Z. X, Y, and Z, exactly, exactly. And you know, you this is actually probably a pretty good point to draw things to a close. And, and I know I've still got some things to talk about, so this will be another episode. But this whole thing of, of when it is an oral testimony after the fact, or removed from the fact, you know, we, we certainly don't discount oral testimony or oral histories. Yeah. But what you do is you weigh them with, ah, it is. this person says, well, I remember that so-and-so did X at Y place and Z troops were involved. Well, then you can go back. Okay, what was happening at that place, according to other records? Was this person at that place? Were these troops mentioned in that vicinity? So there are always ways to use the oral testimony, use the concrete things it says in it, and see, okay, are these things plausible? Are they consistent with the known facts? Right. And then you can say, did this happen? Did this not happen? Is, is there concrete evidence? You know, so on and so forth. And so we've talked a while. So we'll stop talking now. We'll stop talking now, but we've got a list of things. I'm I'm anticipating at least a part two. At least a part two on myth, 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 myth of the American, American, American revolution. It wasn't a revolution. It wasn't a revolution. It was a war. It was a war. On then again with <laughs> Ken and Glenn. <laughs> then again with Ken and Glenn is produced by the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. 